From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Strap on your parachute. It's time for What Goes Up with Sarah Ponzek and Mike Regan. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week on the show, for the first time in a year, benchmark 10-year treasury yields spiked above 1.6%, and the stock market started to show its nerves. What's actually behind the spike in rates? And at what point does the equity market have to take serious notice? We discuss. And as always, we will close out the episode with our tradition, the craziest thing we saw in markets this week. Uh, Sarah, another crazy week. I got a couple good ones. I, I trust you to uh, as well. I, I trust you have plenty of good ones, Mike. Yeah. Um, and I'm excited this week. I mean, I know I'm excited every week, but I'm especially excited this week uh, for one thing, because you've managed to drum up a ridiculous amount of interest in my high school nickname among listeners. I did not expect the the demand to be so robust. I think the joke uh, is on you, Mike, though, because I think you're actually the one who drummed up all this demand. I've just been going along yeah, for the ride. And here we are sitting, it, knocking on the door of 200 reviews. And that means that Mike's just going to have to share his other other not as flattering high school nickname soon. <laughs> it backfired on me. It really <laughs> did. I did not think I did not think the demand would be that robust, but we're only up to 197 now. So I, I I will not reveal the high value nickname. I might reveal a lesser valued nickname at the end of the show if, if you stick around. So there's that. But the other reason I'm excited, Sarah, is this week's guest is a bona fide Philadelphian um, like myself, at least suburban Philadelphian, <laughs> which means I may slip into my sort of Delaware Valley accent and, and talk about water ice and, and stuff I'm like sure that. Sure, everyone would love that. Everyone. I know at least our guest uh, will, will understand what I'm talking about. Uh, and she is the chief investment strategist at PNC Financial Services Group, which manages uh, in the neighborhood of $150 billion. Her name is Amanda Agati. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be with you both today. Great. And also, I believe a Luzerne, if, if my LinkedIn stalking is accurate, <laughs> a Luzerne County uh, native or, or at least high school which is wow, also that is that is really impressive. Yes, I am a Dallas high school grad nice. in Luzerne County. Yes, yes. Har- Harvey's Lake. You've swum in Harvey's Lake, I assume. And uh... oh, absolutely. Many, many summers spent at Harvey's Lake. Yes. <laughs> like you should never, <laughs> ever be ashamed of LinkedIn stalking. Yeah, it's what we do. It's what we do. <laughs> That's what we do. Oh, I'm impressed. <laughs> but my, my people came from uh, Wilkes-Barre, not too far away from there. Uh, and and many summers at Harvey's Lake, too. I, not me, but them. But anyway, enough with all that. 
Amanda, I, as Sarah pointed out, boy, the Treasury market has really taken center stage this week. I guess, um, you know, it wasn't very surprising that we should see yields yields creep up the way they they have. I think the rate of change is kind of what's alarming people, how swiftly they, they've moved up. What is your your thinking on that? You know, what are you telling clients about this? Is it, um, you know, to the moon, as they say on Reddit for yields now, or is this is this just sort of an anomaly? And, and should should this at least the rate of change in the increase settle down, do you think? Well, I think there's a lot to unpack as it relates to what's happening with interest rates here. I think at the end of the day, this feels like about as high as we can see the 10 year go from a market driven perspective. We can talk a little bit about why that's the case. I think there's some issues at the very short end of the curve. There's also some issues at the intermediate and longer end. And so when you combine those two things together, we're really seeing pretty dramatic steepening in the yield curve. If I just take kind of the longer end as a starting point, so the 10 year absolutely at the highest level of the pandemic, um, you know, really outsized moves more significant than even what we saw following the Georgia Senate runoffs and even the Pfizer efficacy um, news around their vaccine back in November. And yet we really haven't had a lot of meaningful news. So fairly extreme moves here on basically this idea that we're going to get a ton of stimulus coming into the system and fast. And so, you know, the, I think this is the bond market's interpretation that, that Congress is going to effectively pull off a $1.9 trillion stimulus package and then turn right around and do another package, but infrastructure focused of the same magnitude or larger, just in a matter of a few months. And our take on this is that the bond market is obviously concerned about it, obviously fixated on it, but ultimately it's going to be very difficult to get all of this done in rapid succession. I think it's pretty clear and well understood that the 1.9 trillion can get done through budget reconciliation. Not at all clear that we can get the same uh, magnitude of stimulus done for infrastructure without raising taxes. And so I think that's going to be the key to the path forward in terms of the intermediate and longer end of the curve. I think things are going to settle down a bit. We may not actually see rates fall back down meaningfully, but this rate of change has to slow down when you start to factor in um, increasing taxes. That's not going to be able to happen or turn on a dime necessarily. The short end of the curve, very different story. So much, much more pressure on the downward side uh, of the short end of the curve. And it's really a function of treasury related accounting, as I would describe it. Um, there's an adjustment there in terms of cash reserves as it relates to their funded status and as it relates to what they think is going to happen from a stimulus perspective. And so net net, they are creating some scarcity of supply there. And I think that that is putting pretty significant pressure on short term rates. We've even seen repo go into negative territory here again very recently. And so I think net net two very different uh, forces applying a lot of pressure here on the yield curve, creating a lot of steepening. Um, you know, the usual interpretation of steepening is that we're going to see this massive acceleration in growth and potentially an inflationary spike. But I would say we need to slow our roll here a little bit, just given kind of the forces that are at play. A little bit of a head fake, not necessarily expecting a full normalization, but 
I think that this is, you know, very significant short-term volatility that will start to slow down a bit over the weeks and months ahead. So, so focusing on the longer end of the curve, I mean, we heard from Jerome Powell this past week uh, speaking to the Senate Banking Committee in which he said that, you know what, essentially people shouldn't really worry about the backup in long end yields because it's a statement of confidence in growth. And you mentioned that people kind of need to slow their roll talking about this massive pickup in growth, possible worries about inflation down the road. But what is the takeaway here? And when you look at the data and the expectations for trillions of dollars of stimulus coming our way. What is the outlook for growth? What is the outlook for inflation? And therefore, what does it actually mean for assets like bonds and equities? Well, again, there's a lot to unpack here in terms of the path forward. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that we are not out of the woods yet in terms of the pandemic. You know, case curves are definitely moving in the right direction. There is some progress on the vaccine front. But my goodness, things are moving a lot slower than I think all of us uh, would like to see at this point. And so that really does pose some pretty significant challenges as it relates to the reopening And the path forward, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 percent of U.S. GDP is still in states that are under some form of economic restriction or lockdown. So we got a long, strange trip ahead of us. Right. 2020 was a very long, strange trip. And 2021 is setting the stage for a similarly long and strange trip to get to a reopening. And while we think in the short run, Things are likely to be a little bit choppy on the economic growth side of things and also in terms of this market rally as we move towards the second half of the year and certainly as a setup for 2022 a much more bullish backdrop uh, starts to come into focus. And so at the end of the day, it really comes back to the path forward very much being dictated by COVID um, and the pace or timing of getting this economy reopened, uh, but certainly some fits and starts in the short run. As to your question around inflation, you know, back following the financial crisis, there was a lot of concern sort of deja vu all over again, very reminiscent today of the concerns and fears back then following the financial crisis that we were going to see this big inflationary spike or inflationary accident. And ultimately, none of that really did transpire. Now, I fully admit that we are in unprecedented territory as it relates to stimulus coming into the system far and away more today than what we saw back then. But we still think there are some structural forces in place that will keep a lid on inflation. So it isn't that we won't see some bouts of it here in the short run, certainly seeing it in terms of lumber prices, health care costs, child care costs. There is certainly a short list. Um, But net net, we don't think that that's enough to cause any kind of long term damage to the economic recovery or, frankly, the, the market rally. And then longer term, when you think about the structural forces like demographics, which are clearly deflationary here in the U.S., um, technological innovation, which really has been disinflationary, deflationary, how you want to describe it throughout the pandemic, even before the pandemic took hold and has really distinguished itself in terms of pulling away from the rest of the market pack. We think that technological innovation story is very much here to stay and will also keep a lid on longer run 
um, inflation measures. And then the one thing that had been a pretty significant headwind to inflation, now we're seeing a little bit of a pop in it, is certainly energy prices. But again, if you think about where we are today versus kind of the next three months or so relative to last year, boy, we have some awfully easy comparisons relative to inflation. I mean, basically bouncing off of record no activity, right? Not record low, but record no activity. And so is it any wonder that we might start to see a little bit of inflation pop here? No, but I think net net, once the weather kind of normalizes and the middle of the country moves past the challenges they've uh, faced over the last couple of weeks, we think that energy story is going to start to fade a bit into the background. So we are obviously watching the inflation backdrop very, very closely in terms of, you know, all the stimulus coming into the system and this economic recovery that's in the very early innings still. But we're not not particularly alarmed um, that inflation is going to be strong enough to derail the path forward. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I got to say, um, Amanda, you, you won my heart there with the long, strange trip, Grateful Dead reference. That's that's pretty good. She also, Sarah, uh, referenced a Doors song, Break On Through to the Other Side in a note, which also in my, I think we had the same record collection as as uh, as kids, Amanda. But uh, amazing. Yeah. You know, I have to I have to laugh. One of the I joke that it's one of the most important jobs that I have as the strategist for PNC. Other people would say you've completely lost your mind. But every year we try really hard to kind of pick a song of the year or a musical reference that we think is really going to define the next 12 months, either from an economy perspective or from a market perspective. And so unfortunately or fortunately, I'm not sure the 2020 uh, musical reference was trucking by <laughs> the Grateful Dead. And you know, to start the year, we were actually seeing this really interesting and attractive cyclical brightening of the backdrop. Well, then, of course, you know, everything fell apart. With the pandemic, that was not part of the musical reference by any means, was certainly not in our 2020 outlook. And so it evolved from uh, the cycle's going to keep on trucking to uh, my what a long, strange trip. <laughs> I love it. So it I still love worked. It, it still I, worked. I got to uh, say, I, I wrote a column years ago saying that the key to success as a strategist was how good your musical references were in, in the, the titles of notes. So I, I you win. You get I think. an A plus I, I, in Mike's okay. book. I, I think you win. Yeah, that's the only metric right. I, I really I really follow. But uh, but I, I wanted to get back to that. You mentioned, you know, that the notion of a head fake in inflation. And I think that's super important right now. Um, 
not only, uh, you know, looking at the stimulus in the pipeline, but also the sort of craziness in the energy markets because of the Texas situation. Uh, you look at commodities across the board, you look at copper, it's it's really just going to the moon lately. Um, so I think that sort of uh, colors the notion of the Fed uh, allowing inflation to run hot a little bit when you have such depressed base effects from the previous year, like like you you point out. Um, but I wonder, you know, if the bond market could fall for that head fake and sell off even more aggressively. Um, and it gets to the notion of, well, what? how does the Fed respond? Everyone's kind of worried about a tapering. Um, I wonder if that, you know, that could be the wrong worry. And, and maybe, you know, we should start thinking about, well, would the the Fed go the other way and, and maybe buy more on the, the long end and, and sort of really do an ex- explicit type of yield curve control? Is that something? Is that a possibility, do you think? Or if I if uh, I've been listening to the Grateful Dead too much here and I'm, I'm going nuts? <laughs> Well, you know, I, I don't pretend to be in, in the head of uh, of the Fed chairs and really kind of getting a sense of what they plan to do. I mean, I think it's certainly a possibility. Our base case is that, you know, the Fed is going to continue not thinking about thinking about uh, raising rates. Right. <laughs> a little bit of a riff there on on Powell's quote, you know, no major rate increases for the next two or three years, potentially. So we're not in the camp. We've we've seen members of the street start talking about pulling forward rate increases um, into the nearer term outlook. We are not in that camp. We we think that we're going to stand pat here for a while um, and that the QE story is just going to continue. I think the, the piece of the puzzle here that just doesn't get enough attention in terms of rate movements is really global interest rate differentials. Um, there's that we wrote a paper uh, last fall talking about negative interest rates and the upside down world. That's a Stranger Things reference, not a musical reference, but still. I'm a Stranger uh, Things fan. I'm ready for the next season. Okay, yeah. <laughs> totally, totally obsessed with it. Um, but we thought it was a really good analogy for the upside down world of negative interest rates. And so I think you still have to take into consideration global interest rate differentials and how wide they are. That giant sucking effect from negative interest rates, that gravitational pull um, that we're seeing has to come into play here in capping or putting a lid on longer term interest rates. The 10 years now, the second highest interest rate across developed markets, I think behind Iceland, if I did my math right, kind of fun fact there, Um, And eight countries today in the developed world have a tenure with a negative yield. And so we really think that that is just going to continue to attract foreign investment into the U.S., really acting as that additional pressure on longer term rates, kind of creating this vicious or virtuous, I guess, depending on how you want to look at it, kind of cycle. And so, yes, you know, the market can certainly take uh, interest rates wherever they would like to. We've we've seen that certainly in the last few weeks, but I do think that there is this gravitational pull um, at the longer end that is going to eventually put the brakes on in a big way. The other thing that we haven't really talked about too too much is how much pressure the equity market is starting to feel from this rapid increase in rates. That may very well also put some brakes on this um, here in the not too distant future. So with that said, I mean, I asked at the top of the show, at what point does the rise in yield start to affect the equity market? And clearly, we've seen some jitters 
this past week. And I, I feel like I've heard people ask this question over and over and over again uh, and posed in research reports left and right. Can't the point already be made, though, that we already have seen the bond market assert itself in the equity market when you look at the breakdown of the returns we've seen this year? I mean, for example, this week you had financials hit a record high. You had banks rise to the highest since 20, 2007. At the same time, you have energy on pace for its best month versus the S&P on record. And yet we see the likes of Tesla and the ARK ETF, and the Nasdaq 100 and growth stocks all coming under pressure. I mean, aren't we already seeing the repercussions of this? Oh, I think we absolutely are. I think it'll be a little bit more fleeting, though, than perhaps what the headlines suggest and kind of what we're seeing in terms of regime shifts and market rotations and such. I mean, if you think about the areas that are rallying on this this increase in rates here, it's really the value side of the equation. It's really the go outside trade. And so and this has been the case for a while now, right? Post the the Pfizer efficacy news back in November, that kicked off a firestorm of a rotation. And yet it really largely has been a sentiment shift. It has not been an underlying fundamental improvement and fundamental acceleration. And so we're really of the mindset that this is really getting uh, pretty extended here in terms of this value rally in the short run and, and this go outside trade. Not that we're of the mindset that we have to revert here and go back fully to the stay at home trade. But if you think about where the rubber meets the road and it is in terms of earnings growth and fundamental improvement and profitability, the the stay at home trade has really distinguished itself and continues to even as a function of Q4 earnings season. Such strong, bright spots coming out of Q4 earnings season. It's still on that stay at home trade side. And so even though valuations are pushing pretty elevated levels, right, it's not a stretch to say equity valuations are indeed stretched. But we actually think the underlying fundamentals in many aspects of the stay at home trade, the growth areas in particular, justify valuations. And so on a growth adjusted basis, we actually think there's still room left. Um, Still much more of a Hail Mary, I think, in terms of this value rally that we've seen. Uh, The market's starting to price for perfection on the value side of the equation when we know that we're nowhere near back to pre-COVID, you know, uh, pre-2020 norms. And so pricing for a perfection in a backdrop that's anything but that gives us a little bit of pause here um, at this stage of the market rally. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. 
You know, Amanda, I think one of the really fascinating things uh, that's happened over the last year has been this new focus on sort of alternative data sets, uh, sort of high frequency uh, economic data, you know, whether it be open table reservations, uh, uh, airline traffic on a, on a sort of weekly, daily basis. Um, I know you've looked a lot at this type of uh, data you even uh, talk about move it. I'm not quite sure what that is. I assume it's some kind of moving. Uh, uh, how much people are moving app? But it's a it's so move it is a, a public transit oh, okay. um, app. And as a function of the pandemic, they actually started releasing data for major city usage. And so that actually, believe it or not, has become one of the key uh, indicators for us in terms of the success or failure around reopening. I mean, you called it out, things like open table reservations, weekly retail sales data, even weekly airline passenger volumes. In pre-COVID times, we would have never shortened up our line of sight and looked at such noisy high frequency indicators, we really would have been looking more at the traditional usual suspects like industrial production, monthly retail sales and GDP. I mean, today, thinking about GDP growth and the GDP forecast, you know, three months lagged with a number of revisions. I can't remember what I ate for lunch yesterday, <laughs> let alone what happened three months ago. It's a blur. And so it's not really giving us the right line of sight in terms of the path forward. And so no matter what indicator you're looking at on the high frequency side, any of these ones that I've thrown out, um, they're all still somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40 to 50, even 70 percent off pre-COVID levels or even really year over year, given kind of where we are in late February here. And so I think it's just very helpful in terms of gauging this path forward. The consumer may very well still be consuming to a degree but clearly we're all still very much living in a stay at home world. And so it's also very reflective of this massive divergence between Main Street and Wall Street and kind of how which one hooks toward the other um, in 2021. It's a key question that the jury is still a little bit out yet. On. Yeah, it's still pr- pretty early on or actually very early on. But it seems like everyone's trying to game out how quickly people are going to feel comfortable going back to normal. And I'm just curious, I mean, considering that you track all of this high frequency data in the early days of the vaccine rollout, have have we seen an increase in, in any type of this high frequency data showing that some people are at least more comfortable? We definitely have seen an improvement. So even though I'm saying we're somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 70 percent, that's such a wide, wide range, but 30 to 70 percent off pre-COVID levels, that is better than the depths of the lockdowns for sure. So we are definitely moving in the right direction. I just think the market has started to price in basically a full reopening And back to business as usual and pre-pandemic norms. And I think it's going to take a lot more time for the consumer and businesses and individuals to feel like things are back to normal. I think two, two very recent data points that kind of reinforce that are on the sentiment side of the equation. So University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey Worst reading since August of last year, big nosedive uh, relative to the last few months. Even on the, the business side of the equation, the NFIB small business optimism reading all the way back to the worst uh, level since last May. And I think that's still just very much emblematic 
or symbolic of the high degree of uncertainty that we still find ourselves in, in terms of the path forward, we are just hashtag not out of the woods yet. <laughs> I'm going to look up that hashtag. I think you just made that one up, Amanda. I don't know. <laughs> I've been using that one for a while. You know, it's one of those things where if you use it and use it and use it, eventually maybe it catches it's, on. It's got a trend. It's got a Mike's trend. Mike's going to start saying it. I've already noticed in, in this episode that Mike's already said to the moon twice. So clearly Reddit has got into his head. Uh, so. it's, it's rubbed off on me for sure. <laughs> Like it or not. You need to throw in a when Lambo here once in a while. So. <laughs> but, but a bit, it's kind of bottom line it for us here, if you will. I mean, to me, you sound um, perhaps not risk averse, but but certainly cautious about, uh, say, equities and, and how you would position your, your investments right now. You know, if I'm a PNC client and I get you on the phone um, or perhaps one of the advisors that, that works for PNC, uh, what is the sort of allocation, portfolio allocation that you'd be uh, advising at, at this moment? Well, I think at this point in the market cycle and the economic recovery, you still have to be very picky and choosy. This is not an environment where a rising tide is going to lift all boats equally. And so on the equity side of the equation, even though I do believe that valuations are quite stretched, we still think that there are pockets of opportunity. So the brightest star in the equity asset class universe, as far as we're concerned, is emerging markets. Um, we think, you know, from a from an investment thesis standpoint, it's just a really strong backdrop uh, setting the stage here in 2021 and beyond, potentially at the very earliest stages of a major regime shift. You know, the the baton tends to be handed off between the developed world and the emerging world every 10 years or so. And we think this could very well be the start of that. When you look at the data as it relates to the pandemic, um, they've done a better job managing through that up to this point, and it has enabled them to get their economies more reopened. It isn't that they are fully reopened, but they are certainly ahead of the developed world. And so that has had really positive implications for the trajectory of earnings growth across much of the emerging markets world. And so it's the highest uh, earnings growth uh, projection across equities for 2021 and beyond, really significant, like 35% year-over-year growth relative to just the S&P 500. Still, still attractive, but up 24. So a big differential there. Um, so we think that that's a really interesting uh, place to be. We also actually like the emerging market debt side of the equation. So from a policy stance, um, definitely many more levers to pull to the extent that they do run into a little bit of trouble or fits and starts around um, an economic recovery and reacceleration here. And then there's a fairly attractive yield story as well. So so we're definitely very positive on all things emerging markets, other areas and equities that we do like very much. I'll throw it out there. It's a very controversial trade called the QQQ. <laughs> uh, it's very, very much in keeping with that stay at home trade. You know, they've really been able to, as we talked earlier, muscle through the pandemic and distinguish themselves in so many ways. And we think that will be used to their advantage in terms of the the growth and yield starve world that we think we're still very much in and that that lies ahead. So we're very positive on that area. We also like global infrastructure. 
um, which is kind of an interesting one, a quasi fixed income like exposure, taking a little bit of cyclicality out of equities, but definitely jacking up the potential for yield and income. And again, in a yield starved world, you have to get a little creative about how you pick it up in a thoughtful way. And so we think that's also interesting. Is that like, I think it, like MLPs, that type of thing? Or? Well, I think what I would say is we we would avoid energy specific infrastructure. So yeah. it would be more traditional infrastructure, airports, toll roads, rail, et cetera, that kind of, uh, you know, real asset uh, type infrastructure investments as opposed to commodity based. The commodity ones, just given, you know, what's happening with WTI and a whole host of other commodity prices inject an awful lot of volatility into it. And so you don't really end up with the ballast that we're striving for um, in terms of that exposure. And then on the fixed income side, you know, if we think equities are stretched and expensive, we think it's much more so in fixed income. If you look at the yield to duration ratio for investment grade corporates, even with the backup in rates that we've had, we're sitting at an all time high, handily favoring stocks over bonds. And so Unfortunately, investors are being pushed a little bit further out the risk curve than they might otherwise like to try to pick up some yield. And we don't think that story is going to change too, too much over the next few years. So we do uh, have uh, exposures to leverage loans, to high yield. Um, and then, as I said in the beginning, emerging market debt. Got to be really thoughtful about picking up uh, those types of exposures, though, Credit analysis is just so critically important in some of these below investment grade asset classes. And especially given the uncertainty and the backdrop, you don't want to just buy a passive benchmark like exposure there. So th those are a few areas that we still think are attractive. Gave us a, a handful there. And now that uh, Amanda's bottom lined it all for us, I think we should let Charlie Pellet tell us what time it is, Mike. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. All right. It is indeed that time. Uh, Sarah, let's start with you. On, uh, I'm, I'm curious what you got for us this week. All right. So I've been on a roll with the names that sound like other names. So I figured, <laughs> why not just keep going with it this week? Um, there was this one story on the Bloomberg this week that was just funny, almost the way it was written. And the headline was biotechs that sound like cannabis stocks join frenzied pot rally. Um, so I'll just I'll read you part of this. Um, so it says drug makers that target the and I hope I'm pronouncing this right. The endocannabinoid system which is believed to play a role in regulating body weight and controlling energy balance, have skyrocketed in 2021. Then it says, while those biotechs wouldn't necessarily benefit from any legislative push for the pot industry, analysts say the stocks have jumped on the idea that they would be associated somehow with cannabis. Then there's a sentence that just says, and they are not. So very, <laughs> very blunt there. Uh, but just to give you a couple examples, um, Corbis Pharmaceuticals has almost doubled this year. Artello Bi Biosciences uh, is up 180%. So some massive rallies from companies that are believed to possibly be beneficiaries of the new administration in Washington, D.C. Uh, but to repeat that sentence, supposedly they are not. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. You see a lot of this these days. I'm going to launch a SPAC that's like uh, cannabis and blockchain unlimited. Uh... I'm sure it would do very well. Yeah. Yeah. 
But all right, uh, Amanda, uh, have they prepared you for our our silly tradition here? The craziest things we saw in markets this week. Do you, do you have anything for us? I have one for you, and Excellent. I don't know if I'm going out on a limb with this one, but I'm going going out on a limb is always good for this segment. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going NBA top shots. Yeah, I don't know about you all, but I feel like we've kind of started to enter the crypto kitty phase of the uh, crypto bull market here um, <laughs> that ended in kind of epic disaster back in 2017. But I don't know what is up with these. They call them non-fungible tokens. It's amazing to see that these things have been trading for over $100,000 a pop. And even just in the last week alone, cumulative transaction value at more than $100 million. To me, it's just mind-blowing uh, where we are in the cycle here. I'm convinced that NBA players are bidding up the prices of their own highlights. I, th I think that's what's going on. I think we're going to, in a few years, we're going to read about NBA players who went broke because they spent their entire patient <laughs> buying their own highlights on Top Shot. Mike, you should start looking into this. I think, <laughs> I guess you can't short them though. I, I uh, but yeah, and shout out to one listener also uh, brought up NFPs. I, I Forgive me, I, I did not uh, write down their handle, but they pointed out the New York Times had a big uh, story on NFTs and it is it's it's remarkable. I mean, it's it's just this feels like there's just a, a oversupply of money in the world that's chasing anything like this that that you could possibly make a buck off of. It's amazing. It's amazing. And, and some, I mean, a little bit different, but somewhat along these lines, um, Fred Hoffman, he's a professor over at Rutgers Business School. He reached out and he shared a New York Times story, basically just saying that there's two LeBron James cards now worth $7 million. So again, the alternative assets space, uh, Mike, especially just looking at sports cards. I mean, through the roof, it's, to the moon, as you would say. <laughs> to the moon. It's, it's absolutely amazing. I, I cannot wrap my head around it. In a way, I guess maybe it, 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 it it works as sort of a, a, a valve, uh, you know, a release valve of sort of excessive speculation in, in the markets. But maybe that's a generous way to, to look at it. Uh, I don't know. But I'll give you uh, my crazy thing, which I hate to go back to GameStop, but of course we have to go back to GameStop. And at, at, what what is a week without a GameStop, without a GameStop mentioned I know, these days? I really, know. though, it really is transfixed us all. But the craziest thing about this rally to me, uh, this surge higher on uh, Wednesday, is I looked up the, it's a function on the Bloomberg called the quote recap, which tells you like, you know, what exchange or was it a dark pool that it was uh, executed on and the size of the trade. And during that run up, it, there was a remarkable, huge number of single share trades involved. Like the vast majority of trades were for, for one single stock. Which I think, you know, obviously the your sort of knee-jerk reaction is, well, this is the Wall Street bets crowd, the retail buying one share at a time. I mean, maybe that's what it means to live in a commission-free world is you can, you know, buy- you can if you want. You can buy one share to, at a time. Others were saying, you know, maybe it's uh, it's an algo, uh, which I, to me, and, and I'm no expert on algos, but, you know, it, maybe if there's someone- out there uh, uh, as a listener who is, they could call us up and, and let us know what they think. But I always picture algos as, as being trading, you know, uh, round lots of stock. In other words, 100 shares at a time. I, I would surprise me again as a non-expert, but it would surprise me for an algo to actually break 
up trading into single shares at a time uh, because I was mostly on the lit markets on, on the NYSE and the NASDAQ. And it just doesn't necessarily make sense to me. Larry, I asked Larry Tab of uh, our, our guru here on market structure at Bloomberg Intelligence. He was kind of dumbfounded, too. He said, yeah, there's definitely probably some retail. Uh, it might be uh, uh, separate account allocations, you know, some RIA uh, putting people, other their clients into a, a little bit of GameStop. I don't know, Amanda. I don't know if uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if I can imagine any uh, RIAs doing that with putting their clients in, in GameStop. What do you think? I can't fathom it, honestly. I would feel like that would be an epic breakdown from a risk management standpoint. So, yeah, that it wasn't us. <laughs> <That's for sure. laughs> wasn't me. Um, nope. Well, well, if anyone out there listening was trading GameStop share by share, give us a call and let us know. And then we also got a tweet um, from another listener that I want to share. Also give some numbers a- around this a bit. Her name is Alondra Garcia at Alondra GM. And she said, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week was brought to my attention by Matt Levine's money stuff. And she said the median Robinhood account size is $240. Meanwhile, the average account size is $5,000. And 13% of Robinhood traders trade options. So that gives you a sense. I mean, obviously, the median account size at Robinhood is not so large. So maybe they are trading share by share, Mike. Yeah, that's bull. And uh, the difference between the average and the, the median is, is pretty It's very impressive. big, yeah. So yeah. so mostly, you know, you, I guess you conclude it's mostly small dollar accounts, but then there are a few really big ones in there that, uh, that pulled up. Pretty interesting. That's good. And uh, by the way, Matt Levine's column is a is a great source of crazy things in markets. It is. Yeah. Oh, every it's column has something new and crazy in it. So yeah. if you're ever short of ideas, I'll admit sometimes, occasionally I am, can go can go check out Matt Levine's money stuff column now that he's back. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, Amanda, Gotti, we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you so, so much for joining Mike and I this week. Thank you so much for having me. It was such fun. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reg Anonymous. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. Also, thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.